0: Well, I took a trip to Nashville a couple of weeks ago, and I learned that boarding airplanes is a little tricky when you've got a broken leg. I mean, you've got to you've got to you've got to buy a ticket first of all, and then for me, it's crutches and a scooter and luggage as I arrive at the airport, and then. You know, they don't just let anybody on the airplane. They want to check your identity multiple times to make sure that it's you. And then there's layers of security. And they actually asked me, can you stand on one leg for five seconds? I'm like, no. Well, do you think you could try? No, I'm not going to stand on one leg for five seconds. What if I fall down and hurt my other leg? And then, you know, because I couldn't stand on one leg, I got fully patted down. That's a great time. And then, you know, can you take off your splint? Yeah, what else do you want me to take off? Come on now. And and then they are swabbing me for, you know, residue. And I learned that the x-ray technicians have never seen trail mix in a backpack in their machines before. They triple checked and finally pulled my trail mix out. I said, that's trail mix. You buy it at Costco unbelievable. And then, of course, you have to navigate the gates and the jetways. And I was challenged getting to my seat. And, you know, the idea that, you know, like, and then there's the curtain, the veil between us common folk and those who are special. And I couldn't even dream of getting past the veil. But to get past the veil and past the small door where the pilot lives, that is what I would think is the holy of holies. So here's how this illustration works. Getting into an airplane is much like how it was in the Bible, getting in the presence of God. You, first of all, had to get your ticket. That was your sacrifice. Uh, And your sacrifice had to be inspected, make sure that it had no blemishes by the priest. Then your identity was scrutinized Because only Jews could get beyond the court of the Gentiles. And then there was the women's court, and you couldn't get further than that unless you were a man. And then if you were a Jewish man, you could go to the court of Israel. But only if you were a priest could you go to the the next place, which was the priest's court. And then there was the actual building, the sanctuary, where only a handful of priests would minister to the Lord inside. And... The Holy of Holies, which was only one man, one day a year to go into the presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was pretty difficult to experience God's presence in the biblical times. Well, as I think about God's presence, I think about his holiness, his perfection, his otherness, that he's other than we are. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And as I thought about this, I ran across just a little clip from the Bible Project video about the book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus isn't a book that you probably read very often, but this nutshells this idea of God's presence, his desire to be with us, and his presence and holiness being very closely linked. Take a look. Now, remember, the story of the Bible began with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us, so he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. And so God's presence comes to dwell in a tent right in the middle of Israel. And That's great. But it creates a problem because it's so intense that Moses can't go in, and other priests who enter inappropriately, they die. Well, wait, if God's presence is good, how is it all of a sudden dangerous for people? So think of it this way. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which like the sun is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. So God's design has always to be with mankind. That was the idea with the garden. And yet when sin enters the equation and we're sinful, it makes God's presence a dangerous place. His holiness then requires some things to not be vaporized, like that little rocket ship that was going toward the sun. So when we draw near to God, His presence includes this perfection and holiness. And so what were the ways that God set as the ways to draw near to him without being killed? Well, those are in your favorite book to study, Leviticus. This sacrificial system that was a part of how your sin was covered or atoned for in the Old Testament. And it made you able to get into God's presence. And it's true that God is present everywhere at all times. The big theological word for that is omnipresent. That's why David writes in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. It's very comforting to realize that God is always with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. But besides God being present at all places, at all times, there's a sense of God's, what I'll call, experienced presence that's special and different. Mentors like Tozer would call it the manifest presence of God. So as biblical history moves forward, you come to King David, who changes how God's holiness and presence is experienced in a radical way. And that's what we're going to see in this, the 23rd message in this series. That's right. I'm not bored yet. This series I'm calling Lessons from Three Kings about Saul, David, and Solomon, and certainly some Psalms in there, as well as some Proverbs who are written by Solomon. But today we're going to look at 2 Samuel 6. We're going to see several responses to God's presence. And my challenge to us is that we would look at our hearts and we'd examine how do we approach God's presence in our worship today. So as you turn, if you want to turn in your Bibles or your digital Bibles to 2 Samuel 6, I just want to give you a little quick review and context. In the last chapter, chapter 5, we have David who becomes king first of all over in Hebron over the tribe of Judah and then he becomes king over all of Israel. He also conquers this little town called Jerusalem and he sets up his capital city there. Besides setting up his capital city there, he wants that to be where God's throne is, where God's experienced presence is. And his goal is to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which carries God's presence into that place. So that's going to be his aim and goal in this chapter. So this first part, there's three parts of this this, uh, sermon today. The first one I'm calling Dancing and Dying. Let's take a look at verse one. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. That's a big group of people for this parade. And he and all of his men set out for Bella of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the Ark. It's a very long name. So let's talk about the Ark of God for a moment, shall we? Now, for those of you who have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, this might have some kind of vague familiarity to you. The Ark of the Covenant is this gold, wooden, gold-plated box, which is about almost four feet long and about two or so feet high and two feet wide. And it was made as the people of God were exiting in the Exodus out of Egypt to the promised land. It contained three things. The law, which was what Moses received on Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments carved in stone. Those were inside it. Also, a jar of manna. Manna was this bread-like substance that fell on the ground that God sent to his people so that while they're on a 40-year camping trip, they would have bread to eat. It's, it shows God's provision. And Aaron's rod, which was the staff that literally blossomed even if it, while it was on as a staff away from a tree, it blossomed with an Ammon blossom. And yes, I said that correctly, Ammon people. Those three things were in the Ark of the Covenant. It was placed in a tent called the tabernacle, which was the t- tangible place where heaven and earth, where God's presence met, where God would dwell with his people. The Ark represented represented God's immediate presence and glory on the earth. So after getting to the promised land, the ark is in a town called Shiloh for almost 400 years inside the tabernacle. Now, the Jewish people would go there for festivals and they would gather around, worship and make sacrifices. In the beginning of 1 Samuel, if you recall during, if you've been here throughout the series, you remember a priest named Eli. Eli had two wicked sons named Hophni and Phinehas, and they were the keepers of the tabernacle and the ark itself. And they got a bright idea that maybe if they took the ark, like a good luck charm, into battle against the Philistines, they would win. The ark was never supposed to be a good luck charm. And so as they go into battle, guess what happens? They all die and the ark gets taken by the Philistines in the enemy territory. Now, along the way, while the ark is gone, the tabernacle actually moves from Shiloh to Nob and then to Gibeon, but there's no ark inside, even though they keep doing the sacrifices. Now, the Philistines, meanwhile, have this ark. They don't know what to do with it, so they put it in their temple. But then everyone starts getting hemorrhoids. Yes, you heard me right. Hemorrhoids. You can go back and listen to that message. The curse of having the ark illegitimately gave you lots of pain, and that was before preparation H even existed. So they go, we got to get rid of this thing. They keep putting it in different cities in Philistia, same result. So they put it on an ox cart. And they put some golden objects on the cart and they whip the ox and they stand back and they let the ox cart move out of Philistia into Israel. Well, the Israelites are so excited to see the ark. This is their most precious piece of furniture, precious possession in the whole of the nation. And so after seven months of a little trip it arrives in Israel at the house of Abinadab. He's a priest, and it's there for, we think, about 70 years, plus or minus. Now, one more thing about the ark before we continue with our, with our narrative. The ark was designed to be carried on poles, not put on an ox cart. It was designed to be carried only by Levites from the tribe of Levi and from a specific family of koath. We see that in Numbers 4. So it's really specific how you handle the ark. You don't just do whatever. Verse 3. So, these two guys, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinanab, which was on the hill. Usah and Ohio. Sons of Abinanab were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. So it was about an eight-mile walk from this city to Jerusalem, mostly uphill. And these are sons of a priest who grew up with the Ark in their house. It's like coffee table, sofa, Ark of the Covenant, that kind of thing, you know? Their names, by the way, Usa means strength, and Ohio means friendly. Friendly's out in front. Somehow strength is going to make sure that everything goes okay by defending the ark, maybe walking beside it. These guys do not obey the Lord. The ark is never to be put on a cart. Where do they get this idea? From their enemies who put it on a cart, who were that desperate. It should only be carried on the shoulders of men from a certain family. It seems that these men took for granted the holiness and presence of God embodied in the ark. They were really casual in the way that they handled this precious possession. And I believe that they, over time, became became to take God's presence for granted. I think of this as, um, well, let me put it this way. I have never done electrical work in the United States. I don't have a license, therefore I would not do it. However, I've built multiple houses in Mexico, um, and under the watchful eye of a journeyman electrician, I have wired multiple houses in Mexico. I have never been more respectful of anything than electricity. As I'm holding wires, okay, Mike, are you sure that this is right? Andrew, you got it. No, I just want to stop asking me questions. I have so much respect because this can kill me. This is the kind of respect and reverence I have for electricity. God's ark should have the same kind of reverence. Watch what happens. Verse five, David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps and lyres and tambourines and and sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled. Verse seven, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died right there beside the ark of God. But God... He was just like making sure it didn't fall on the ground. It's like your most important thing. Why are, you so, why, are you just, why are you so upset about this? Is this too much? I actually had a conversation with a friend this week as we were talking about this passage. And she said, you know, my dad used this as a reason why he wouldn't follow God. Because that kind of God, any God who would, who would punish someone for doing something as simple as that shouldn't be a God you follow isn't this just his natural reaction to the ark falling? Well, let's look at Numbers 4.15. After Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, these are all the things that are in the tabernacle. And when the camp is ready to move, the Kohathites, those are the, the special family, are to come and do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. That's right. It's really clear. These guys should be experts in archaeology. That was a bad pun. These guys should know better. They have grown up their entire life with the ark in their house. But their casual nature of not understanding the second mistake that you'd be so casual as to touch the ark. That should be your electricity moment where you go is this a, are we uh R.C. Sproul said this, the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this, he assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. Bad answer. The holiness of God. Verse eight, then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? David's fearful of God because he says, "Uh uh-oh, if I bring this into my house, maybe similar things will happen. It's all about me. It's all about me, people. I love David, but sometimes he gets it wrong. Verse 10, he was not willing to take the ark of God to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the nearest place, the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. <laughs> David's like, I'm going to try it out in your house first to see if you like, get killed like those other guys, and then I'll see what happens. For me. I love David, but sometimes he gets it wrong. 1 Chronicles 26 tells us that this guy was actually a Hebrew and a Levite. Good choice. He's actually even part of the Koath family. And I think he's living just probably right outside the walls of Jerusalem. I think that they made it most of the way before this happens. And this guy, Obed-Eyem, he's blessed. His whole household is blessed. He's not afraid. He embraces God's presence in a very real way. Second part of the message, the ark, it does get to Jerusalem. Verse 12. Now David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Yay! Verse 13. And when those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord, you notice they're carrying it this time, had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. A lot of sacrificing going on here. Verse 14, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and with the sound of trumpets. David is wearing a linen ephod, meaning he's wearing priestly garments. Uh, He's not wearing his royal robes. He's willing to identify with those around him. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Now we talked about Michael of number of weeks ago, so we're not going to talk a lot about her today. But Michael is a spectator of worship. She's one who crosses her arms a lot, who judges it. She's not a participant. She feels like the Simon Cowell of the story. And actually, that's a little bit, you know, that's not fair to Simon. Verse 17. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. By the way, David, as we learn in Psalms, is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not a Levite priest. And this word for tent is different than the word for tabernacle in Hebrew. This is the word for a normal shepherd's tent. So David's, David's tabernacle is different because. There doesn't seem to be a holy of holies. A worshiper was in the direct presence of God with no veil between the Ark, of the Covenant, and the people. And David empowers Asaph, who writes some of the psalms that we have today, and others to oversee worship there. First Chronicles 16 tells us about it. David left Asaph and his associates before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister there regularly according to each day's requirements. Verse 4, and he appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord and to record and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. So there is a whole ministry here. And according to this verse, to record literally means to set it down so that it can be remembered. Write out the songs. It's not like I'm going to record it on GarageBand. But make sure that they're written down. Guess what we get out of this? The Psalms. The first day, David writes a psalm on the occasion. We see this in verse 7. Then on that day, David delivered this psalm to the thank the Lord in the hand into the hand of Asaph and his brethren so they could sing it over and over. It could be one of their new hit worship songs. First Chronicles tells us that David actually hired almost 10,000 people To do this ministry 24 7. Over 4,000 musicians. Talk about a, a battle on who's gonna play guitar this weekend, right? 24 7 worship. The music never stopped. The expressions were so jubilant clapping of hands, singing, gestures, instruments. And so the experienced presence of God was in Jerusalem. It's what David longed for. Meanwhile, the tabernacle, you remember that place? It's got the Holy of Holies in it and stuff. It's still going. It's in Gibeon. It's still functioning. They're still doing all the sacrifices and the ark ark hasn't been there for years and years and years. And of course, just for those of you who don't know, this tabernacle had different compartments. The outer court, the inner court, the holy place, the most holy place. And if you're in the congregation, like this chart says, you are even behind a wall. Sorry. But David still leaves people to minister, priests to minister there at the tabernacle. We see that in verse 39. David left Zadok, the priest, and his fellow priests before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place in Gibeon to to present burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the burnt offering regularly morning and evening in accordance with everything written in the law of the Lord, which he had given Israel. It's crazy to think that the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God is gone, and yet you're still going through all of the motions. As I thought about this, I thought, how many times is our, are our lives similar? where we're going through the motions but we really don't feel or sense God? And sure, there's moments where we've got to change it up and seek God differently. It seems like God even steps back from us and we've got to seek Him. And in those moments, those are moments when we've got to try some different things, some new things. It might be spiritual disciplines, where we fast. It could be deciding that we're going to study the Bible in a different. Translation. It could be getting on YouTube and finding a new song to listen to. It could be going out to the most beautiful place in creation and meeting God there because that's your pathway. It could be studying a new book or something, digging in. For some of you are just you love to study and you love to get into to all the nitty gritty, and that somehow just brings your heart afresh and anew to God. And sometimes we've got to do some different things to meet with God. But what I'm seeing here is this sense of Going through the motions and yet not having the presence, the experienced presence in our midst. Doing the same things over and over, expecting a different result without God's touch. I think there's, it's just really interesting the difference between Moses' tabernacle and David's tent, if you will. Moses' tabernacle, I think, showed that perfection was needed to approach God, that you needed certain sacrifices and things to be able to approach God. And that was a good thing to learn and see. But there's something about David's tabernacle that shows the mercy and inclusion of God. It's foreshadowing Jesus who will come and give his life so that we can boldly approach the throne, Hebrews 4 says. There is an individual sense of Moses' tabernacle and there is a community of worshipers in David's tent. Even the prophets, after this, um, David's tent is only in operation for forty years. After that, Solomon is going to build a temple, a brick and mortar building, if you will, where you're once again going to have all the courts and the, you know, and then the holy of holies. It's going to be separate. But you would think, wow, we're really getting better and better and better. But Amos, even after the temple in Amos 9, this prophet Amos, who you find that in the Old Testament, 9, 11, and 12 said, In that day, he's speaking for the future, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that hear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. There is an inclusion. Y'all come sense of David's tent. And why is this important? Because when we get to the New Testament in Acts 15, where those early church leaders are arguing over, is it really true that the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people can actually be grafted in and saved? James, who's the leader at the church in Acts 15, quotes Amos 9, talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles coming into the kingdom. David's tent is far more significant than just a 40-year place for the Ark of the Covenant to sit. It certainly embodied God's presence. And I believe anyone who is exposed to God's presence is always changed. Well, finishing up this point, Chap, um, verse 18, after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person and the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their houses. This was a great feast. There was much rejoicing, but not everyone's rejoicing. That brings us to my last point, and it's short. It's about Michael. And she scoffs. Verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, notice it doesn't say wife of David, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Well, hi, honey, how was work anyway? Remember, she is the window watcher instead of the street dancer. Instead of taking part in the celebration, she's sitting back. Now, some people want to sanitize the Bible, especially the Old Testament. That makes me crazy. And the truth is, there's a little Hebrew word, gala, here, which means to uncover nakedness. Everybody wants to say, oh, no, David, he wouldn't have, you know, like, dressed inappropriately. No, maybe he saw, you know, maybe that linen was not, you know, women, you have those slips, right, that go underneath the the robes. Uh, He didn't get the memo that he needed a slip. And maybe, maybe he was exposing himself a little bit as he danced. Let's not let him off the hook. Sometimes, David, even though he's a man after God's own heart, he can still be a knucklehead. But David is humbling himself before the Lord, dancing with all his might. He's not worried about whether he has a slip-on. He's dressing like all the other priests instead of like a king. And I think his wife who had eyes for the throne and eyes like her father, she was the daughter of Saul, was all offended. David's audience was not other people. It was dancing before the Lord. Verse 21, finishing up here. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Is Michael cursed for having this kind of a, a attitude? Or is it just that David, as we know from last week, already has at least six other wives? Maybe he just decides, I don't think I want to be with you any longer. Perhaps that's why he she has no children. We don't know. But it's a curious line. And it certainly does not reflect well on her. So, What is our posture in the presence of God? I'm going to invite the worship team to come and we're going to finish with a song here in a minute. But as they come up, I want to remind you of a few people from our narrative and see who you relate to most. You see, because some of you may relate to the Israelites who were hoping that God's presence was like a good luck charm. And and like, if I go to church, if I give money to the Jesus center, and I tithe, and and if I serve every once in a while, maybe God's going to bless me, and then everything's going to be great, and I'm not going to have any pain. Maybe that's your interaction with God's presence. Or you're like the Philistines, who God's presence made them very uncomfortable, if you know what I mean. And maybe there's guilt and issues in your life where you need to come to the cross for cleansing, for he, for healing, and you can relate to them most. Or Abinadab, whose God's presence was, was here in his house, coffee table, sofa, Ark of the Covenant, and yet it was just another thing in the house. It seems like his sons just have this lackadaisical kind of opinion toward God, and it doesn't affect you in the least. And so maybe you come to church and you go, oh, they come, they eat, they leave, they come, they eat, they leave. What time is lunch? Or maybe like Uzzah, who has become too familiar with God, and maybe you have too. And you treat the sacred as commonplace. And you have an over-familiarity with God. And you've lost your sense of awe. This is the one that I relate to most. Or maybe David who in this situation wanted God's presence, but once he got a glimpse of his power and his absolute holiness, didn't want anything to do with it, he drew back and said, you can have the ark in your house. You're not sure you want to be that close to God because you're afraid of God. Or like Michael, arms crossed in the window, spectating, don't want to get too crazy. Those people, they're like, they're so emotional. There's so much emotionalism. I don't know about you, but my body and my spirit and my emotions, they're all tied together. And when God's moving, I get emotional. It doesn't mean I check my brain out the door. I was at National Council for the Alliance, and our secretary of our, of our committee got up to read through parts of the statement of faith. And it was just a business thing. But as he began talking about Jesus and how Jesus died for us, he just began weeping as he was reading the statement of faith. And I thought to myself, that's right. When I encounter truth, there's a response. And we have different responses, all of us are different. It doesn't have to look the same. But emotions are part of worship. But I want to be most like Obed Edom. He's this chap that gets, you know, David drops by the ark for three months. He's like, oh, great. But he welcomes it. He welcomes it so much that it results in blessing his entire household and his life. And and he's willing to let God do the work in him. And he's expecting God to show up and to experience his presence. And so I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know which of these people that you most relate to, but I know as as the shepherd of this house, I want us to step into a place of being more and more sensitive to the presence of God, the experience of God, not for emotionalism, but for the sake of resonating with the true God who changes us every time we get into his presence. He exposes things in our lives so that we can come into alignment with him. He leads us to a place of life to the fullest. His presence is something we need to learn steward and experience. And so as we close, I ask the team to come and lead us in one last song and then I'll pray for you.